Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Melbourne, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. This episode's conversation is about engaging the crowds and transforming them into communities. Innovative ideas and customer community come to life because of how we engage with them. Customer feedback loop, gamification, reward systems, UX, CX, you name it. Companies want to be innovative, but are they willing to take risks? And how much risk is too much? Are we delivering transformational innovation or are we playing it safe? Let's ask Olga Quaster, Head of Customer Experience and Design at Medibank. Olga has extensive experience in building capability and engagement, influencing and consulting senior leaders and executives. She has been part of NAB Labs at National Australia Bank and Vice President of JP Morgan's global technology team. Significant, scalable, sustainable innovation. A Florence Guild conversation with Olga Quaster. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I hope that you interrupt me and ask me questions because um, I have a strong accent, as you probably gather by now. Even though I lived in England for 16 years, I still talk like this. It's not going away. So please ask me. I'm not precious about it. I love the interaction, and I think that people get more out of it. So if you have a question, just go. Just ask. Cool? Excellent. So we're talking about engagement and we're talking about innovation and um, it is a very topical topic um, and I was thinking how do I frame this so it's not just a rant Olga talking because I'm very passionate about this and I thought maybe a good thing is to bring you some examples as well and we can discuss what those examples mean to us um, so one of the things that I want to start with is the difference between innovation and invention because I get a lot of confusion when I do these things and and I think that innovation doesn't have to be inventing something it's sometimes seeing what no others see or seeing it in a different way so that's a, for me very important I think that innovation also starts with the people we design it for I think that there is a big trend on this where everyone now is customer focused and customer centric and I wonder how much of that we actually truly believe and act on. Because it's hard. Um, and I often give the example of, if I was to ask you to run a marathon with me tomorrow, 6 a.m., 25K, and I can see that some of you are far too fit. But if I was to ask you that, how many of you would be like, I'm in? <laughs> see, the, the two gym guys at the front, it's, it's always someone. But the reason for it, possibly is because for me I die in the process I can tell you I have two kids I don't smoke but as if because I go up two sets of stairs and I'm like huffing and puffing like if I was 60. so for you it may just be exactly the same some of you were like six o'clock are you for real no way so I think that we sometimes ask our mind 
to do things that we haven't trained our mind to do. And that's not something that we will do to our body because quickly responds. So I think that um, before we make that huge transition, we actually have to train our mind to think and operate in that space. Um, and I give you some examples of innovation that is no invention. And it's seen things in a different way. Many of these examples you will know. So if you know them, add to it. I'm going to start with something that happened in Stockholm because it is a pain that many of us feel. I was last night in a room with 300 people and somebody had the great idea, one of the other panelists had the great idea to ask the room, what do you hate about driving? Well, boy, that was an eruption of hatred to the most incredible things, many of which I actually agree with. I mean, hook turns, this is something that <laughs> I'm sorry, but I cannot get used to it. So some of these ideas um, that come from other spaces, they look at the problem in a different way. And in Stockholm, much like the rage that was happening last night, they were looking at speeding in our roads. Um, and we've tried everything, haven't we? We've um, put limits, we have police, we even have people that tell us very clearly how fast or how slow we need to go by putting the window down and telling us a few things. So this is obviously something that we're passionate about. Where Stockholm did it in a different way is that they look at the behavior rather than find a solution. And they thought, what about if instead of penalizing those that go above the speed limit, we praise those that go under the speed limit. And um, this is part of the innovation as well. How do we test the validity of this quickly, sharply, and inexpensively? So if we got it completely wrong, we haven't invested three million of our taxpayers. So they use existing technology, so the cameras. They use the existing funding, which was, if you get a speed ticket, that money goes into a pool, and then the picture taken of those going under the speed limit was put into a ball and a lottery system where the money collected from the over the speed was actually shared with those going under the speed limit. How long do you think it took for people to reduce the speed limit? Half a while, guess. This is the interactive part, by the way. Immediately, not quite. I, I love those people that are really optimistic. <laughs> not quite immediately, but pretty, pretty quickly. It took about three months or so. After a few lotteries and people realized that that was not a gimmick and actually was happening, people clock onto it pretty quickly. So I think that we can learn a lot about that. What, what do you take out of that example? Gamification. Gamification. <laughs> what else? Say that again. That government is more interested in the fines. In the fines? Mm, possibly, yes. I don't have any evidence, but I will have to agree with that. The fourth position is punishment rather than... Yes, yeah. What were you going to say? Oh, that carrot works better than the stick. Yes. <laughs> and, and it tells us a lot about behaviour. And behaviour is not different wherever you go. So I think that sometimes when we're talking about 
innovation, what we really mean is how do we actually sift the behavior, the decision making, the motivation of some of our customers, if not all. And, and I think that they were very clever in doing certain things. There is another beautiful example in which um, I saw it the other day. One of my friends in Europe sent me the, the picture and it was a tube station and a big sign that said free gym pointing at the stairs <laughs> rather than the escalators. I thought that's really clever, isn't it? Because it makes you think and it sifts your thinking. So that's the power of innovating. What else does that mean this example for you? What else is there? Yes, that sometimes our perceptions get in the way of what we can do. And we have to rethink how to look at the problem. I think that that's very clever. So, yes. An assumption crusher. Assumption crusher, yes. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, and I think that engages those people. So think about it, with the fines and the lottery, you actually engage the whole community rather than alienate a part of it. I think that's really clever. Um, let me give you another example, a little bit more scientific for those of you that are very scientific. Um, <laughs> the, this example comes from gamification and it's actually kind of like crowdfunding for big ideas. Um, I think that innovation at its core is about problem solving. And Washington was dealing with this massive problem around defining how some of the proteins were breaking down. And it was 10 years with all the top scientists trying to break this, this, how these proteins work, and they couldn't work it out. They created a game called Folded. Have you heard of it? No? no? Google it. It would be like, wow, how did the nine know, know about this? Folded, what it does is it gamifies the way proteins fold. And it was open to anybody from any country. And people start playing with it. And there were librarians, nurses, moms that didn't have anything to do while the kids were having a nap. Um, everyone was playing. This problem was solved in three weeks. Three weeks. A problem that the top scientific spent 10 years and still could not crack. And to me that is the power of, again, different perspectives, gamification, engaging everybody because people are so passionate about this stuff and they have so much to offer even if they don't come from that field. So that was for me like wow. Um, halfway, through. halfway through. Wow, can I talk? Um, <laughs> NASA very recently did the same and opened this big challenge that they have and a kid I think it was 17 in Russia, solved it from them. This is NASA. I mean, this kid has future forever, you can tell. <laughs> the parents were like, <laughs> sign the contract. <laughs> Education pay for life. <laughs> um, let me give you another example. This one is, um, this is quite fun. So trying to appeal to all the different ages. I can see the young ones here going, 
<laughs> not really. Um, J said, I cannot say the letter said, but he is Beyonce's husband. Now you know who I'm talking about, yeah? <laughs> now, he decided to write a book, his memoirs. And you know, he's a cool cucumber kind of guy. And started to talk to the editor and say, well, I'm gonna put a book out there. This is gonna be a bestseller. I'm just gonna tell you, five million. I don't need it. So rather than do the five million, how can we, what I want is really engage with my fans. And they look at this bookmaking and starting to ideate and innovate around how do we go about doing this? What is the opportunity here to really truly engage with the fans? If you were to innovate, if you were to write a book and you wanted to do it differently, what would you do? I'll give you an example. I will get my wife, Beyonce, to sing it in a whole album. <laughs> That's my thing. Make an album? Make an album, why not? Get all the other rapper friends. We won't understand anything that they say, but you know, it's there. Anything else? What other ideas do you have? Shall I tell you what he did? It's brilliant. I didn't like him before, but I think I start to like him now. No, you probably like the person that came up with that idea. Yes. <laughs> Very good, Janet. Um, what he did is actually bring the story to life by publishing the chapter in the location that happened. So if you wanted to read about Jay said, whatever, you know what I'm saying. Um, well, he was 10, playing with his other friends in this abandoned warehouse. You will have to go to that warehouse, get to the roof, because the pages were publishing the roof of the warehouse. That is pretty risky, but quite brilliant at the same time. So if you wanted to read about Jay said getting the train, going into the city and doing his thing for the music world, you would actually have to go and read one of those pages in the timetable of the station where he used to go and get the train. And then jump on the carriage that he and read the next chapter. And then come down the train in the stop that he used to get and read the next, and so on and so forth. So what was great about this is that brought alive some of the nuances that were explained in the book, but also it brought the differences between where he was a child playing in that area and the difference that 10 years later that area had. So it actually not only told a story, but you got to create your own story about what has happened, because this is not exactly how it's described in the book. Do you love that, or is it just me? What was the success rate? I don't know, because I, I think that it was a bestseller, but I tell you something else. Even if it was a crap book, it will still be a success, because it is him, and he draws a crowd. Um, to me, the success comes from creating something unique and delivering something in a way that is truly what you want to deliver. Understanding that it's not just a book, but it's experience that you want to give that person. That it's not just about 
I give you a book that you buy, and there you are in your house. But I want to draw you into my world and engage you into what I used to feel. I want you to not just imagine how cold it was, but I want you to feel it. Yeah, but did as many people show up as he wanted? Possibly. I don't know. It's a good question. But it was a movement. I'm they, really curious whether it actually um, worked. I'd, so it would distinguish uh, the fans from the, the diehards, wouldn't it? So I, if, I don't know the success because I don't know. But I can tell you that there was a massive, um, so in social media, there was a lot of talk about it. Because some people, for example, wouldn't know where the pages were. So they were telling each other. And it's like, page 16 is here. And that was it, vroom, people going and reading it. So it was kind of like a treasure hunt, almost. Um, and I love that. I think that regardless of whether this was something that drew hundreds of millions or just five people. For me, the success is that he created something that was unique and it delivered to that experience. And I think that that's fascinating because it makes him really brave. I mean, that could have been a massive flop. And also there is a lot of invention that goes into it as to how do you publish these pages so people don't steal them and then, you know, whatever. Or how do you publish a page on the roof of a warehouse when there is rain and snow and everything. So I think it's quite brilliant in general, but that's just me. I get excited with very little. And a lot of museums are doing this now. Um, my time working in a museum is probably back seven years ago, so I'm totally obsolete. Um, but I work in a museum called Musak. Um, and Musak is quite fascinating because it has a completely different business model. The business model is that they don't charge any entry fee. It's completely free. And they have a whole pavilion dedicated to artists that come from that region. And um, contrary to what many people will think, this is a really successful museum to the point that um, Tate Modern, which at the time the director was Spanish, I think his name was Sergio, um, was interested in the business model that Musak was using. And he came over with some of the representatives to find out, well, how do you get away with it? Come on. Because whatever investment is there, you almost have to recoup in one way or another. So how do you make money? How do you actually make money when you're not charging for the service that you provide? Um, and it was really interesting. The other thing that Musak did really different is bringing art to the remote areas where some of the older population could not come to all the openings and be part of something that they were, their vision was to be part of the community and engage everybody in the community. And they realized that there was a big part of that community that was not engaged, not because they didn't want to, but because traveling that distance was too much for them. So they actually became Musak Mobile, and uh, there is this little village near Musak where the founder of Coronita, the beer, some of you know Coronita, come on, the one that you put the lemon in. So he actually was so taken by this idea that actually opened a small museum in this village, absolutely funded by him, which is 
just kind of like, wow. And that comes from the inspiration of a museum director that had a vision. And the vision was to engage with the community and not being put down by the constraints of general business models. He wanted to think about it in a different way and see the opportunity that no one else was seeing. So it was really quite inspiring. Yeah. There is a guy called Dan Ariely. Who knows who Dan Ariely is? You do. The rest of you, we need to have coffee. Seriously. <laughs> Dan Ariely is a god. I promise you, if you take anything from this talk, let's make sure that you go and search this guy. He's funny, he's clever, and he's doing a lot of good. And his research is just so inspiring. He does research like nobody else. Um, going to Coursera, there is a free course around irrational behavior. And he publishes his books in bundles, because he can. Um, but he does a lot of research, much as, um, I, sorry, I don't know you, your name. Chloe. Chloe. Yeah, sorry, I'm just trying. Is it, it's Dan, is it? Dan, D A N. <laughs> sorry, I, I thought it was Don or something. No, my accent. See? Excellent. No, no, I love your accent. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Right back at you. <laughs> Got it, thanks. Um, so, the way he does behavior um, and how he goes about it is very much like Chloe was talking. He makes these fun exercises and then he creates really empirical evidence which is like really difficult to relate. And it's like, how great, because this is like for the good of everyone, you know? Like we don't have money to do all that research. How great that somebody is out there doing it and then sharing it with everyone. It's like, you just have to love him for that. Um, but there is a lot of really great stuff. And I give you one thing that speaks about the importance of really sifting behavior. Um, he, was, he has tremendous burns from when he was young. Um, and that has a lot of impact, you know? Go and Google him. His story is so fascinating. You will be entertained for the whole weekend. But one of the things and connotations that come from it is that he has a heart disease, almost. Um, and for that, he needed to take certain medicine. Now, this was a life-threatening condition. And if you were to ask him, as he said, I don't want to die. But dying for him was in the future. He wouldn't die tomorrow from it. But it was a condition that eventually will kill him. Now, lucky for him, there is a cure. So this cure was still kind of like no proven. So he was a little bit of a guinea pig. Um, and part of it is that the secondary effects were quite drastic. So he the secondary effects were so real to him and so in the moment that it were affecting his life. So while dying was in the future, those secondary effects were taking place now and very real. And they were really very much felt. So he realized that he actually was not taking this medicine. And it was almost like cheating to himself. And then we'll have the conversation with the doctor, and the doctor say, oh, you didn't take your pill on this day or on that day and that day. And he'd be like, oh, I don't think I did. So it was all very weird. So being the sort of person that it is and knowing a lot about behavior, he said, no, I have to change my behavior around it. 
and he changed it by, and there were a few trials and errors, but I'm going to cut this short. And this is the boom <laughs> moment in which he went and understood that he needed to create positive association with the side effects. So he then yeah. will have the stamina to take those tablets. So he went on to doing the things that he loved them, bless you, that he loved the most. And his favorite things were movies and popcorn. So what he did is he will carry the medication with him in his backpack and prepare himself by on the way to work, purchasing the movie that he wanted to watch and the popcorn. And then just before he was going to take the medication, he would actually watch the movie and do that. So then that positive um, connotation came from whenever I take the pill, I'm doing the things that I really enjoy. Then the effects came and he was really sick for a long time. But at least that helped him to take the medication that eventually will save his life. I think that that is just so beautiful. He went on to doing research with people with heart disease because a lot of them need to take a tablet that they never do. And he created a solution for shifting that behavior. So the impact that he is having in the world is just, you know, He's a god in my eyes. So that's like, my husband is super jealous of him. <laughs> and I think that's about me, isn't it? Thank you very much, and thank you, Olga. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. You can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.